This is Chartable Radio, a podcast about the business of podcasting from Chartable.com. I'm Dave, the co-founder and CEO of Chartable, and this week's guest is Amanda McLaughlin, the founder of Multitude Productions. Amanda talks about how her days as an early YouTuber led her to start Multitude, and she offers super practical advice for building and engaging with your audience as a podcaster. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on Chartable Radio. My pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great today. How are you? Good. It's been a whirlwind of a news cycle at the time of recording. It is. Yes. This is the week of uh, Spotify's announcement of their acquisition of Gimlet and Anchor. I don't know about you, but uh, I can't stop trying to figure out what's going on there and thinking about it and, and parsing out what it means for our industry. Yeah, that is uh, life in podcasting in a way. Everybody is sort of figuring it out as we go. And at least for me, every new development, I try to fit it into some like meta narrative, some like world, um, you know, theory that will explain everything about the industry and its problems and its successes and what's going to happen next. But it's um, it's a little more, I think, ambiguity than I'm comfortable with. <laughs> well, maybe we can dig into that meta narrative uh, later later in the chat. Uh, but before we do, I'd love to just get a quick intro on uh, Multitude and you know, kind of what you do, your shows, and you also have some services. Can you give us a quick overview? Sure. So Multitude is the production collective that I created last year. So basically, I'm a self-taught independent podcaster. Uh, I started development on my first show in 2015. And over the last few years, you know, I've started a second podcast. Friends have come to me for advice um, on starting their own, on selling ads. And eventually it made sense to start some kind of umbrella uh, organization or name so we could promote each other's shows, share resources, cross, you know, cross promote, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so that is Multitude. And we call ourselves a podcast collective, meaning that every host owns their own show. Everybody operates independently, makes their own choices. But together we do things like show up at conventions, plan live shows, sell ads, um, and do some some cross promotion. So that's the sort of collective half. And then we're also a consulting company. So we help companies, individuals, radio stations, nonprofits to make podcasts and distribute them. And really an increasing amount of our work is in marketing. Marketing podcasts is really difficult. People don't know how to do it. Uh, but over you know our, our years in the industry, we figured out how to market in sort of like a zero dollar budget way. So we really do a lot of talking to people individually, um, doing grassroots marketing and just communicating our idea of the show, what the show's narrative is and kind of appealing to listeners to help share it. So we have some best practices around how to do that and communities to reach out to, content marketing, press pitching, sort of all the stuff um, that you can do to try to get your podcast into as many earbuds as possible is something we help our clients with. That's amazing. Yeah. Every time we talk to charitable users, uh, the number one problem that everyone has is growing their show. So you guys are developing a playbook as to how to do that. Yeah. And um, I just actually put up a Skillshare course on podcast marketing, which is free. So that has some of our top tips on getting your show ready to market and then doing social media well, doing content uh, marketing well, and stuff like that. But you're completely right that people are still figuring out how to do it well. And I don't claim to have all the answers, but the answers that I do have, it's important to me and to my colleagues at Multitude to try to share whatever best practices we're encountering 
um, to kind of help level up the the whole industry. Absolutely. And so you came to podcasting from YouTube. Is that right? Yeah. So I was sort of a, not the earliest adopter, but an early adopter on YouTube. I started making videos in 2000, early 2008, late 2007. Um, so very early in the service, kind of just after they were bought by Google. And it was an incredible community, like super creative. A lot of people who were not trained or even interested in filmmaking and digital media you know, found their way to making videos because the other people who were doing it were just interesting, creative people with stuff to share and conversations to have. So that is where, you know, I was in high school at the time. And that is really where I, I became a person and made a lot of the friends that I still have today. So um, in college, you know, we were sort of getting to this era in 2010, 11, 12, where people were starting to make money from YouTube. It was getting more competitive. The algorithm was favoring channels that uploaded more frequently. The algorithm that recommends, you know, videos in, in your kind of sidebar after you watch a video. So it became a, a real like hamster wheel of needing to make more um, to grow your audience. So I could not commit to that, um, you know, working and, and being in school. So I sort of started listening to podcasts instead, doing a lot of commuting, you know, a lot of running around, a lot of desk work. And that is where I really fell in love with the medium. So um, as I said, started my first show uh, development in 2015, which was just after I graduated college. And here I am now. And what was that first show? It is Spirits, um, which I started with my friend, Julia Shafini, who we met when we were in kindergarten. We're from the same town. Um, and she is a historian and studied like religious studies and history in college. So we would get together at a bar after work. Um, we were living in the same city for the first time um, since graduating high school and wanted to do a project together. So with the help of Eric Schneider, who is a friend I met on YouTube, another really early video maker, video blogger, um, we started the show and we definitely put our best foot forward. We tried to be, you know, something new in the genre. We start, tried to have a good logo, you know, name the show well, have good show notes, sort of all the, the things that we talk to people about now. But we were pretty surprised by how well it was received. Um, and, you know, over the course of our first year, built up a, a really healthy and really engaged audience. So that was the point where all of us said, you know, wow, we love doing this. It seems to be something that people enjoy. So, you know, how can we work toward going weekly from biweekly and trying to make some money and, you know, do this as our as our job? That's amazing. So how, how did you get your initial audience for Spirits? Was it working with folks you had known from YouTube? Was it just putting it out there and it just kind of hit a nerve? Like going from zero to your first set of listeners always seems so daunting for most folks. It definitely is daunting. Um, for me, you know, I, I had a really small but engaged audience on YouTube. So our first like 100 listeners were people who followed me from my YouTube channel when I posted a video announcing the podcast. Um, but from there, you know, Julia in particular um, runs our social media and she is really involved in the audio drama community. So audio fiction and fictional podcasts. Um, so on our, our Twitter, from the Spirits account, you know, she just started recommending audio dramas that she loved. Both of us used those as kind of escape tools from our crappy day jobs. Yeah. Um, and so by recommending other people's shows in a genuine way without, you know, trying to like insert ourselves or ask for something in return, we started making a lot of friends in the podcast community. So we started inviting those people onto our show as guests. They shared the episode they were on and we kind of started, you know, gaining friends and a following in that sphere of the podcast community and then sort of broadening out from there. Um, and also, you know, we, we tried our best to be really discoverable. So 
The description of the show includes the words mythology, folklore, and urban legends, which the conceit of the show is that we have a drink and talk about um, those three subjects, mythology, folklore, urban legends. So if you type in urban legends podcast to your podcast player, you know, you can scroll down and see us. Um, So the same with individual episodes, whether it was about, you know, Japanese urban legends or Persephone and Hades or Zeus, we sort of covered subjects in our first like 50 episodes that were pretty searchable, Um, not for the purpose of growing the show, but we sort of had that in mind with every choice we made. Will this help people to find what we're doing? So a bit of luck, a bit of, uh, of planning, and a lot of just trying to be a really good citizen of the podcasting community, a really conspicuous fan of other podcasts. And I think that's really what, what helps set us in motion. That's great. I mean, that, that level of thoughtfulness and effort put into um, all of those different elements that you mentioned. You mentioned artwork, the title of the show, the title of the episodes, the show notes, and then participating in a, in a uh, non-transactional way on social media. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it also seems to work, right? Yeah. And it definitely helped to have three of us working on it. Um, all of us were energetic. We had different specialties. You know, we figured out what made sense for each of us to tackle. Um, I do a lot of the sort of administration and organization behind the scenes. Um, so planning upcoming episodes, making sure everything is kind of scheduled and ready on time. Eric edits the show. And if I had edited it, we wouldn't have started a podcast in the first place. <laughs> it's just not a thing I enjoy and not a thing I had time for. <laughs> And then Julia covers all of the research, um, like the the sort of conceit is that she brings me, a layperson, a different story from around the world each time. Um, so I just have to show up for recording, which is very fun. And then I worry about stuff like ad sales, you know, cross promotions with other shows um, and just doing the accounting, bookkeeping, you know, keeping the lights on in the background. But yeah, you're right. It's a ton of work. And every time, you know, someone asks for advice or we talk to a, a podcaster or a client about doing more. You know, we try to start with the acknowledgement that you are doing a lot and anyone who is making a podcast is wearing so many hats and doing so many jobs. So to the extent that we can help, you know, focus their energy or help them triage kind of the things that are important to accomplish their goals or identify goals so they kind of know what they're working toward, um, it it tends to help. But I definitely felt a lot of guilt that I wasn't doing everything I should have um, right at the beginning. It took us like two years to do merch for no reason other than that <laughs> something else was too urgent, you know, than, than that. You're constantly juggling so many different responsibilities, right? Yeah. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I feel like I haven't caught up um, with all of the stuff that I need and want to do until pretty recently. Um, I quit my day job about six months ago to oh, that's work on great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it was definitely a mix of, you know, making money from all these different sources, ad sales, uh, Patreon, ads on our shows, um, and consulting that allowed me to do it. Like not one show is big enough to support me or its whole team yet. But, um, you know, even now working on this full time, I feel like I'm just getting to the point where I can make a list of, you know, nice things to have for a show and be able to have the like time, attention, creativity, energy to actually make a plan. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a juggling act uh, regardless. And when you have not one, but uh, five different shows, plus your consulting business, it sounds like uh, you're pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, well, there are also six of us, you know, so every show um, is operated independently. Uh, Mike Schubert, for example, has the show Potterless, which is uh, the story of a grown man reading Harry Potter for the first time. Yes. Um, and he hosts, edits, books the guests um, all on his own. So, you know, the rest of us in the collective, that's sort of the model is, you know, you run your own show and then the rest of us try to support you in the ways that we can. Um, but he, you know, I don't know how he does it all day long. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, do the ad sales um, 
which fortunately the the sponsors we work with really like us. Um, and so a lot of them, you know, tend to have a recurring uh, ad buy, which is great for them, great for us, you know, cuts down the amount of work and, and worry that I have to do getting, you know, something like 30 podcast ads a month uh, monetized. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot. And I definitely could not imagine doing any of this on my own, having, you know, six or seven of us in there to even just chat with on Slack all day. Right. makes a big difference. For sure. There's like an emotional support there that, that matters. Oh, yeah. So let's d- dig into ad sales a little bit. So you you ca- came into this medium from YouTube. YouTube does all that uh, ad stuff uh, for the creators, as far as I understand, yeah. right? Um, this is pretty different, right? So you're out there trying to find sponsors. Are you just hitting the pavement and, and trying to find brands or other companies that are interested? Or how did, how did you go about them? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a mix. Um, a number of the sponsors that are, are those ones that come back again and again are uh, sponsors that I connected with just through knowing their marketing representatives in the podcast community. Okay. So, you know, a ton of our sponsors we were connected with through this one like marketing agency that helps companies do digital marketing well. Um, and the contact that identified those clients and connected me with them was someone I just know from the Bellow Collective, um, which is a podcast journalism website that I contribute to. So it's sort of, you know, you, you run across someone else's path that, you know, they have something in common with you or they need something that you can help them with. And then sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does. But at this point, you know, I've been doing this for for close to four years. So some of those relationships where, again, like I didn't start them wanting something. And years ago, this didn't even occur to me that I could be doing it um, since the shows were were what I thought was too small to have sponsors. But um, at this point, you know, it is starting to kind of pan out. Uh, we also have a, a little bit of inbound interest. So That's at this great. point, you know, again, the show's been around. Some of them are larger than others. So occasionally a sponsor will reach out to one show. And then the sort of collective model is, you know, that podcaster passes it along to me and I'm able to talk to the sponsor and, you know, negotiate for a, a favorable price. I try uh, as best I can to get a sponsor to commit to more than one episode um, because it, it really works best when you can have the same sponsor two or three times. Um, then people tend to take action after repeated right. action. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a mix. It's work. But um, the, the more you do it, you know, the, the kind of easier that sort of snowball starts to roll. But I mean, I knew nothing about it in the beginning and just listened to a lot of podcasts about podcasting and read a lot of blog posts, um, which is why I try to write as many blog posts as I can explaining what it is that I do because it's just it's so hard to learn it's it's so obscure you had mentioned um that a lot of the initial contacts came from folks that you met and I I keep using this word non-transactional but like in a just kind of offhand way right you know it's like you meet someone you know you have something in common you love podcasts or whatever it is and uh years later all of a sudden uh there's there your paths intersect in a way that can be great you know for for both of you right yeah I mean which is easy to say looking back uh you know at at the time like you meet someone who works at an agency you recognize or a podcast network that you know and you know my first thought was like oh my god how can I get something out of this you know like how (laughs) how can I how can I grow my show you know that's it feels so urgent um to to grow the show to make money you know I I spent years at jobs that like burn me out because I wasn't able to do this full time yet. Um, so I, I recognize that it's it's a lot easier when you feel kind of uh, more comfort in your position or in your security to be like, don't worry, guys, like, don't put a lot of effort into it. You know, don't don't want too much. Um, you know, I, I recognize that that's hard to hear. But um, I, I really think that that's kind of our, our whole ethos at Multitude is, you know, we're trying to like be good citizens. We're trying to help others whose work we love. And you know, it's a little bit corny, but like that kind of good, uh, 
stature in the community like does come back to benefit you. Absolutely. I mean, I come to podcasting from uh, the startup world, you know, where I, I was living in San Francisco, like after college and working at all kinds of, and building all kinds of really silly apps and doing, you know, kind of wasting, wasting my twenties, building kind of crazy stuff, but also having a lot of fun and, and, and meeting, um, all kinds of folks, uh, in technology and media, et cetera. Uh, and, um, I had no idea at the time that all these folks, I'd still be like interacting with them and friends with a lot of them 10 years later. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I feel, you know, fortunate to have met the folks that I've met and to, and to be now meeting folks in this industry, uh, who have that, I mean, startups now like are, you know, there's all kinds of negative, uh, press that comes to a lot of tech stuff. Um, and, and my personal experience that it has become like pretty transactional in a lot of circles. It used to be like, uh, you know, I, I moved to San Francisco in like 2004 and like you'd meet people working on like silly, you know, we didn't even call them apps, but silly ideas, tech ideas, uh, because they were super passionate about it and people would just meet and, and chat and, and, uh, it felt like a small community of creators and podcasting really reminds me of that where there's not enough money, uh, for anyone to be, uh, so like, you know, to be a vulture out to like come and squeeze you and get you and try to take advantage of your show or anything like that. Uh, and so there's a much more convivial, like friendly atmosphere. And it, honestly, it makes me feel, uh, it really reminds me of my early days, uh, you know, uh, in, in the tech industry and, and makes me feel happy that there's, there's still these pockets of creativity and, and amazing, uh, stuff happening where people aren't saying, Oh, what do I got to get out of this relationship? The first time they meet you, are like, okay, like, where do you fit into my life plan or my business plan? You know? Right. No, it's 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 really real, and that's the reason why I'm in podcasting. Um, you know, this is not like a a calling for me. It's something where I was interested in it. I tried it. Um, the reward was great enough. Like the, I was starting to see traction, and so I decided to focus more energy on it. Um, you know, I I don't share with like public radio reporters this like love of audio and need to tell stories. I respect it, but it, it's not my uh, relationship to the medium. I just really like it because of the creators and the listeners who are really drawn to it, and it does feel so special. Um, so especially, uh, you know, as you said, there's not a ton of money in the medium yet. Um, it's hard to get sponsors. It's hard to get people to support you on Patreon. You know or whatever your strategy is. Um, so there, there is definitely, you know, I, I feel it too, like this urge to be like, like, you know, defensive, um, or this feeling of scarcity where I need to protect what I have because there isn't a lot going around. Um, but it's, it's something that, you know, I try to kind of stay conscious of and work against because everything that has come to multitude, um, in terms of people knowing who we are or being grateful for our shows or, you know, trying to help us is because we try to be generous with our time and our knowledge, which is sort of anti-intuitive. And a lot of people I know from the, the finance world, which is where I worked before, um, transitioning into, into media, uh, we're like, Oh, you know, why would you publish stuff for free? Why don't you charge people for your expertise? You know, why would you give away anything that could be an advantage? Um, and my answer is like, I care way more that this medium is thriving in 10 years that, that I am thriving in 10 years. And if I can help like raise everybody's, you know, expectations and skill level and help other folks outside the medium take us more seriously, then I think that only increases my own chance of success. For know? sure. I mean, if, if this medium is doing well in 10 years, you will probably also be doing well in 10 years, right? And you don't need to take away from someone else in order to do well. And I think that's like a really important attitude. And it is, as you said, counterintuitive, right? Um, I've seen it happen. Uh, <laughs> I wish that I had uh, risen more with the tide, but you know, I saw it happen in, in the tech world uh, where like 
random friends uh, that I'd met in San Francisco ended up making these huge companies and, you know, uh, bringing all kinds of folks with them. And that was awesome. And uh, I don't expect like, you know, I, uh, I used to make iPhone apps like back in 2008, 2009. And like it was nobody thought there was any money in apps. Nobody had any idea. Even like Steve Jobs had no idea. Right. They were they thought that they 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 sold like a million dollars worth of apps in that first month or something. And they were just completely blown away by it. They had no idea, right? Now it's like a $100 billion industry, right? Uh, I don't think that podcasting is going to be a $100 billion industry tomorrow. But if you, you know, I do think that it is, it, it has to become a much bigger industry than it is. And if so, if you believe that, then there's plenty, there's plenty to go around. There's going to be so many successful people of all different stripes. And we're all going to do better if we help each other out. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to measure that by economic success either. Um, I, I do a lot of, um, or I've done a few, I should say, and I want to do more workshops and, and panels at conferences. Um, and so one that I've given a couple times has been how to monetize your podcast, um, right? Like how to sell ads uh, on your own, even if your show isn't big enough to be, you know, to like garner interest from traditional agencies or sponsors, um, you know, Patreon fundraising and all that stuff. And I always start those kinds of panels by saying like, hey, I'm glad everybody's here in the room with me, but you don't need to make money from your podcast. <laughs> you know, you don't need to monetize every hobby, especially, you know, I'm I'm a millennial. Um, I'm, I'm 27. And people my age, I, I think a lot of us grew up with this expectation that every thing we do has to help us in some way. Like every club we had joined in middle school has to look good on our college application. Um, and that kind of thinking definitely leads me to think, oh, well, why why should I do anything that doesn't help me in some way, whether that's helping me to make rent or pay my student loans or helping me to meet people who could help me one day, you know, in, in a different area of life. Um, so I, I really try to recognize for people that, hey, you can have a passion project, you know, you can um, make enough money to pay your expenses and pay your actors and uh, pay your hosting bills. And that's that. But if it is something that you want to do or, you know, make more money to pay your team, something along those lines, like this is how we can help. Yeah, I think that's a really important message. I think it is interesting to fit into the the overall narrative of um, how everything has to fit into some career plan or or, or whatever. Uh, it, it you know ultimately the the successes that I've seen, whether they're economic or or, or otherwise, I think if if people were planning them uh, the way that like uh, you plan a college application, like they never would have happened, right? Like like things you know life uh, create especially in a creative industry. Uh, it's, it's not about, um, you know, planning out the perfect, you know, five-year plan for, uh, maximizing your influence in this, in this world, you know? Yeah. And like my, you know, my creative journey in a lot of ways started by being rejected by like seven of the 10 colleges I applied to. Um, <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like waitlisted and then rejected at every Ivy league college. Um, I, I don't know why that was my one idea of success, but that was the narrative in my head. And so when that happened, I was like, Oh wait, the, the thing that I have been running toward, um, and counting on is not going to happen. And, you know, and, and it for me was really the moment where I had to decide, like, what kind of life do I want for myself? What do I want to do? You know, it's not just following the the path that I thought I was on. I had to just sort of rewrite it or relay that path as I was walking it. Um, and so I ended up going to a college that was filled with people that are very like entrepreneurial, sort of figuring out what they're doing, doing their own thing. That's where I met some of the folks that I work with now in Multitude. Um, and it also, you know, just kind of threw me into the working world where I had to pay my tuition by working and the jobs that I was able to get were not ones that I loved, you know, I was doing stuff like administrative um, or operational or business management, but 
that's the reason I have a business now because I was forced to learn those skills at what I thought was like a soul sucking day job and, you know, forced to like entertain myself somehow. And when you can't access any parts of the fun internet, you have to just sort of learn um, to like keep your brain busy. So, I mean that genuinely, like I, you know, I would not have any kind of competitive advantage in this space or any other if I was a, a creative person um, without business skills, not to say others can't, I'm just not, I'm not like an artist, you know? And I, um, I only have a place here because I have that weird sort of status of being like the most creative businessy person in a room of business people and the most businessy person in a room of creative people. And that for now, at least is uh, proving to be useful. That sounds like a pretty amazing uh, skill set to have. Totally an accident. Um, And, you know, (laughs) people like when people ask me for advice, I'm like, I I, exactly like you said, I could never have planned this journey. Um, But the human brain is really good at constructing a narrative in retrospect. So like looking back, it makes sense that kind of all my steps went from like a liberal arts education to working in finance, to working at a university, to working at a startup, to doing my own business. That seems really logical when you talk about it that way. But at the time it felt like I was disappointing everybody and flailing around and just like jumping ship to the next ship that passed because I was worried none was behind it. Um, you know, but in, in retrospect, and that always annoys me when I listen to interviews with people who are successful and I'm like, yeah, great. Okay. Like, I'm, I'm glad this worked out for you, but how did it feel at the time? Like, how do you choose a job when you hate your job and you hate all the choices in front of you? So I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't have all the answers, but it's, it's okay for now. Yeah, you know? for sure. I, I feel the same way. I've definitely, um, walked away from, uh, what would be, you know, from a outsider's perspective, like much better economic opportunities to try to forge something on my own. I mean, I even uh, quit a great job uh, in the middle of 2017 uh, with working with people I really liked because I just wasn't, I wasn't feeling like uh, fulfilled by it. And that's, that's what led us to start Chartable, which is great. It's been like super fun and I feel so lucky to have, to have ended up in this community. Uh, but, you know, to be frank at the time, it was like pretty rough, rough going for a, a while, you know, uh, and, and trying to figure out and, and, you know, I'm a little bit older, I have a family and, and trying to juggle those responsibilities while also still believing, uh, whether I'm technically a millennial or not, depends on who you ask, like believing in this millennial idea of like, yes, I can find my path. Yes, I mm-hmm. can, you know, be successful doing this. Right. Um, so knowing like, you know, if we acknowledge that you can't plan everything out in advance, like I'm sure you still have a lot of ideas and goals for where you want to see Multitude go. Can you share any of those? Yeah. I mean, right now I am the one full-time employee at Multitude and the goal is definitely to, you know, make enough um, revenue that we can hire other folks full-time, give everybody health insurance, you know, all these small things that we need to to make a life um, in a stable way. I think having a studio um, here in New York City where most of us live will also be great um, just to be able to be in, in the same space as everybody to, you know, have ideas, develop new shows, you know, stream and just do like funny things for our audience. Um, you know, as I said, right now, you know, for, for the, the bulk of the team that have day jobs or have freelance gigs that they use to kind of supplement um, their income, you know, we just don't have our full, like creative, imaginative, energetic sort of capacity. Um, and so I feel like we're doing great and I'm super proud of what we're doing, but the more people are able to just kind of sit around in an office and, you know, like put aside an hour a day for just like brainstorming or working on a project that isn't public yet, um, I, I think will really help us to level up. I think the first jump was, you know, me leaving my day job and being able to, you know, start to do stuff like planning live shows, making new merch, um, you know, thinking about new shows to launch, helping to standardize things like volume levels and show notes across all of our shows. Um, and just every person who's able to do that, I think will, will give us sort of, um, benefits that we can't imagine yet. 
But um, yeah, adding new hosts, adding new shows are definitely on the agenda. I want to start a kick-ass paid internship program for people who um, might not be in college still or might not study radio in college because I didn't and I didn't learn that I wanted to do it until I was a senior and then it was too late. Um, so being able to kind of give folks who want to get into this medium a paid opportunity that isn't contingent on their student status to, to learn about the industry um, is really a priority. That's super, super exciting. And what what keeps you motivated to 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 do all this work? You know, you must feel that uh, I know you said it's not a calling, but there's got to be something that keeps you uh, coming back at it every day. Like, what what's that driver? I think it really is. Um all the other podcasters that I know and the the really incredible listeners. I'm sure everybody thinks that their listeners are the best, but I really think that our community is the best. <laughs> um, you know, we uh, we have a lot of shows that focus on um, opening up a genre that other people like to gatekeep. Um, so we have shows, again, about history, um, about pop culture, about basketball, um, about Dungeons and Dragons, about Harry Potter. Um, and so all of them are kind of predicated on this idea that like, hey, listener, you might not be a fan yet, but we're going to show you all the things that you don't know you love about this thing. And so that kind of attitude uh, where people come and they say like, hey, I came because I like you guys or I came because I like this subject and I'm learning stuff I never knew. Um, it's often explicitly like a kind of feminist or queer oriented or like social justice minded um, approach to this subject matter. And so sort of consequently, like I, I think the listeners who really love us share a lot of our values. Um, and, you know, whenever we meet people at a live show or a conference, we hear from them that, you know, we're able to help them understand something about their mental health or their gender or sexuality or just something about the world and like bond with a family member or a friend um, over a subject that they never knew they'd be interested in. So I think we really try to, you know, help enrich people's lives in this really small way. And that kind of work, you know, just feels so worthwhile, even when we're up at two in the morning, you know, <laughs> figuring out like an uploading bug to get the episode out for people's commutes in the morning. Yeah, that sounds like a, a great motivator. I mean, how do the live shows fit into that? Do you feel like you know who your listeners really are? Do you have a connection, direct connection with individual listeners? Yeah, I mean, we we are really involved um, with our listeners on social media. Um, and a, a couple of our shows also have uh, Discord, which is like Slack or another chat program um, that's private for people you invite only. So in, in our case, like for Join the Party, for example, our Dungeons and Dragons uh, podcast, which is like a audio fiction, like a play told through the rules of D&D. It's really awesome to have this, you know, commute like this chat forum of like a couple hundred listeners who just share pet photos and recipes and, you know, tales from their games and talk to each other all day long. Um, so that's, you know, a subset of the general listenership. But we do feel like super connected to people. And every day when we release an episode, it's just so exciting to, you know, wake up and look through Twitter um, or Instagram comments or the Discord and to see what people thought because, you know, it can be really lonely to work so hard on an episode and then you release it and do you think, okay, like a few hundred people downloaded this, but what do they think? You right. know, what do they want me to do? Um, so it's that kind of ongoing, you know, just uh, staying in touch with them. We also ran a listener survey um, last summer and hearing from, you know, close to 2000 listeners about their like detailed feedback on our shows, what we do, sponsors they want to see, live shows they want to see. That's one of the reasons that we've um, kind of focused on doing those live shows to answer your original question. 
organization um, is because people really want them. Um, and now that we have the capacity to organize it again, like we have all these shows together. So neither one of us on our own, um, you know, when we first started doing this could book a venue, but being able to say, Hey, with confidence, you know, we can draw a hundred people in most cities um, allows us to, you know, put that together and take the financial and, you know, time risk of seeing how it goes. But so far it's worked out and we love doing it. So hoping to do a lot more this year. That's awesome. It must be so nice to get that, that validation from the community and that connection. Cause like you said, like, you know, getting X downloads, it doesn't really tell you very much, uh, after you put all this work into making this, this episode, right. Um, it must yeah. be great. All right, so let's uh, zoom out a little bit. Love, you know, we hinted at uh, you know some grand theory of podcasting, uh, given all the recent developments. Do you have? Do you, can you share any elements of your grand theory if you if you've got one? Interesting. So, I mean, the the thing on my mind is the Spotify and Anchor deal, and um, and Gimlet, and I think it's really interesting that the Gimlet and Anchor were announced in the same uh, press release. Anchor is really predicated on this idea that anyone with a phone can make a podcast, which I love in theory, but I'm also like, no, it takes so much work. <laughs> you know, you need to edit and you need to think really hard about every aspect of your show from like how you title your episodes to the tags that you use in your RSS feed. Like all this makes a difference. Um, and so that's just the same impulse where at conferences, you know, you'll hear successful podcasters um, sometimes say stuff like, just be good, man. And like the success will come, you know, or like, I don't know, I just like made a good show that I believe in. And then like, now I'm really famous and have a TV deal. Uh, and that's great, but that's not how it works for the vast majority of people. Um, so I think it's fascinating that, that Anchor was in the same purchase as Gimlet, which is saying, you know, hey, we know how to do this really well. The public radio ecosystem, you know, wasn't uh, sort of able to fund all the ideas that we want to do. So we are going to make a bet on, you know, using kind of traditional business principles to make really great shows. Uh, and I, I am nervous, you know, like living through YouTube, seeing Google buy YouTube um, made a lot of the features that we loved on YouTube uh, go away and like upload speeds got faster, you know, and like there wasn't as much buffering, but also you know, YouTube was now like their priorities had to be Google's priorities to a certain extent. So the, you know, commenting got less robust, the algorithm recommended less relevant videos because it wanted to make the user stay on the platform for longer. So as I you know mentioned earlier, content creators kind of had to chase that recommendation algorithm and try to make videos that would be more likely to be recommended. So it's definitely, you know, I don't know, it, it's a it's a crapshoot what's going to happen. And I was excited by the tools that Spotify introduced in terms of, um, you know, podcast discovery, like they would put podcasts on the front page of Spotify, which is really exciting. My mom didn't listen to any of my podcasts until they were on Spotify because she didn't know how to do it. And she had Spotify, but she knew how to do that. You know what I mean? So it's exciting from a, a listener perspective. Um, and I, you know, was so excited when Gimlet was announced because that was the time that I was starting to get into podcasts, wanted to do it myself. And the thought that people who are really good at making stories could, you know, raise enough money to start a business just like kind of blew my mind. Um, so I am really hopeful that this isn't like the end um, for for Gimlet's creativity and sort of rule breakingness. Like I, I hope that this is truly a way to get their shows in front of more people to get on more cell phones. I hope that Anchor's technology, you know, doesn't just flood the market with, you know, okay podcasts that make the rest of us, um, you know, mad with the the sort of <laughs> lack of detail. Um, but it, it's hard. Like I'm, I'm never going to sit here and begrudge someone 
um, for getting paid. And I'm never going to begrudge a company for trying to like make a medium easier. But there are just so many unintended consequences, I think, to to moves like this that, you know, I'm I would feel foolish probably listening to this a year from now and um, and seeing how things pan out. There's just so much uncertainty, you know, for sure, which is why my um, my advice to people is always like, you know, don't depend on any one platform. Platforms are tools for you to use, not friends that you can count on um, because they have their own goals ultimately. And they're either going to, you know be answerable to their shareholders or their investors and, or their parent company, you know, if, if they get acquired. So just think really critically about the platforms that you trust and sell your own sponsorships. If that's something you want to do, you know, ask your listeners for direct support via Patreon, PayPal, Kofi, like whatever site you choose. Um, but try to keep as many of the tools you know, in your own house, um, as you can, like collect their email addresses, you know, have a newsletter, all these things that people say, um, because I, I am just always a a little bit worried that the rug could get pulled out from under us, um, in any which direction. So a business like multitude where, you know, we make money from sponsorships, but also from our listeners and also from consulting, you know, if any one of those kind of revenue streams, um, starts to dry up, you know, we hopefully will be able to kind of address the other ones and try to, to, you know, make the other ones more robust. So I'm always doing like disaster mitigation <laughs> in, a, in a certain <laughs> sense. Um, but I think that's, it's a little bit stressful, obviously, to have that mindset. Um, but again, like living through the kind of online video um, boom and bust, I can't help but kind of think, um, think in those sorts of ways. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point for creators. And I think it's something that actually attracted a lot of people to the to podcasting in the first place was that there were few or no gatekeepers, right? That most of the tools were decentralized yeah. that you could, you know, you can host on any platform you want and you can get your podcast listened to on, you know, do- any of dozens of players, right? I mean, yes, a lot of people use Apple and Spotify, but you know, there's all kinds, you know, hundreds of thousands of folks using uh, apps of all different flavors on different devices, right? Uh, and that's a really amazing thing. Um, but as a creator, I think it is important to think about how you actually connect to your listeners and whether one one person uh, has too much or one platform has too much control over how you connect to them. So your point of, of having a newsletter, uh, you know, keeping in touch with social media, you have live shows, you are on Spotify, you're on Apple, you have direct support through Patreon. It's like you you have so many different touch points with your listeners. That means that if any one of them goes away, you're not going to be high and dry, right? Yeah. And, you know, as a fan of stuff, you know, it, it's such a good feeling to get um, attention from the creator of something that you really respect. So that to us was not like a strategic play, uh, you know, being really involved with our listeners, being really responsive to their feedback, like thanking each new patron on each of our shows um, who signs up to support us. You know, it's not stuff that, that we did because it was strategic. It's just because it feels good as like genuine fans sure. of the medium. Um, not to say that it's not strategic now, you know, I'm glad we did it. And looking back again, like didn't try to, but ended up, you know, unintentionally making some good choices. Uh, but you know, I think like if you're trying to make a podcast and you don't listen to podcasts, like that is a problem. Um, and that, that's my kind of worry is like when, when platforms or companies see podcasting as just another way to like take advantage of a trend and make money, you know, I guess that's what companies do, but also like, this is my house and, you know, I'm, I'm so, um, protective of it. And I hope that people who like, as podcasting gets more mainstream, you know, there's going to be a mixed bag of results, but I hope that more people can discover what makes this so special to so many of us and will choose to give back and to enrich the ecosystem. Um, and not just, you know, try to, try to make some money. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting that, 
um, you know, Spotify announced, like you said, they announced the Jim Lent and Anchor uh, acquisitions at the same time. They're really, in my mind, like kind of two completely different approaches to the medium, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Jim Lent is, you know, they've taught, wanted to be the HBO of audio, right? And the, I, th- I think the founders have used that terminology, right? So it really is in these audio Twitter. Yeah. At first, and then they pivoted. Yeah, Anchor. Yeah, Anchor. Yeah, Anchor was audio Twitter at first, uh, and they pivoted. I think multiple times. And Gimlet was HBO, which is yes. like just a small number of super highly produced shows, right? Uh, and 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 to me, they're like uh, polar opposites, right? Like a lot of the shows on Anchor, uh, because it's so easy, are you know people not putting in a lot of effort because that's that's kind of the point. And I and I think that um, I have to imagine their strategy is some of those folks are going to go on to become great shows, right? Uh, and that's what I would hope personally as well. Uh, but it does seem like a, a funny a funny marriage of uh, high volume, lower average quality on the Inter side uh, and low volume, extremely high quality on the Gimlet side. Yeah. And I see why, you know, Spotify, like talking to their investors would present this as a diversified play, right? Like you're entering a market that you know is really um, potentially profitable by kind of attacking it from two sides. And maybe they're going to end up using staff from both in a super smart way. And we're all just being alarmist. I hope that's the case. (laughs) But I just really hope that as Spotify, you know, has in-house content and if Apple decides to follow or other apps, you know, like Stitcher, for example, that uh, invest in content and also have a platform. Um, it, It kind of sucks when those platforms that used to highlight independent shows um, start promoting their own content instead. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're not obligated to, to promote other people. Like I get why they're doing it business wise, but podcasts, you know, you'll hear people, people moan about podcast discovery all the time. Um, and it's true that it's, it's, there's no like good place. There's no YouTube recommendation algorithm, which is I think ultimately a blessing, but it's, it's hard to get your show in front of people. And, um, that's why I think it's so important to, to really be a part of, uh, the community of podcasters and, you know, make friends that, as you said, is non-transactional that you want to help them. you like their content, listen to other people's shows, tell creators when you like their work, um, try to help other people, support other people on Patreon, you know, shout out in your show, other podcasters podcast that you love. Um, and the more, you know, interconnected we are as creators, um, the more bargaining power we have and the, the less dependent we'll be on someone else's tool, you know, being the only way for us to get our show in front of listeners. Um, that's just, you know, I wish that weren't the case in some ways, but that's kind of our best bet at, sort of surviving the like battle of the titans as platforms you know buy each other or try to outcompete each other is just to like quietly you know do great work try really hard optimize for you know bigger audiences and and discoverability and to help um our our peers for sure i mean i think that's great advice and, and something that we've been looking at also and seeing uh all the big networks uh and i'm sure everyone's seen this if you subscribe to any of the you know the top 10 shows or top 100 shows they take advantage of this network effect where if they have a new show coming up, they drop in an episode into other feeds. They promote the heck out of it everywhere they possibly can. And that, and then they can do that because they already have all these listeners, right? And independent podcasters don't have that ability unless they team up together uh, to uh, promote each other's shows and to, to acknowledge that, yes, a rising tide will lift all these boats. Like we're in this together. There are other people making great stuff 
that that I believe in and that I can align myself with. And you can get some of those advantages that these giant companies have, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Multitude um, is that model in some ways where we are doing similar things to the big guys, to, you know, Radiotopia, who we really admire and and modeled ourselves off of in a lot of ways where, you know, we'll cross promote a new show, we'll cross promote each other, we'll, again, band together to do a live show that we couldn't necessarily all do on our own um, and, you know, share uh, the advertisers, kind of share tools. And I think that it's a, a thing that a lot of people should do, whether that's informally just, you know, helping your friend and promoting their show every so often um, or trying to get yourself on other podcasts that you admire because you want to be friends with the host or you want to, you know, get in front of that audience. Um, podcasting needs to be a team sport when there is such a kind of stacked deck in favor of companies with um, real money or legacy, um, you know, radio stations with a built in listenership and a history of great work and funding models. It just, it's how it has to be. I love it. Podcasting should be a team sport. I feel like we should make a t-shirt or something. <laughs> <laughs> Podcasting is a team sport. Yes. No yet. Yes. Um, so are you optimistic about the prospects for independent podcasters over the next few years? I think so. I mean, they're already like when YouTube first started, right? People were so excited because before you had to have so much money to to publish video online. And if you got popular, uh, Rooster Teeth talk about this, where their their series Red versus Blue um, got super popular, and then they woke up to like a twenty five thousand dollar hosting bill or something wild like that. Um, and and YouTube really again like democratized in a way and like gave us tools to publish our work. And over the course of just, you know, my short internet life of the 18 years or so, um, coming from fandom, from early forums, you know, from places like that, the tools in front of us are so much more robust. And like, yes, as a landscape gets more um, kind of funded, the pressure and the sort of like iteration and the need to make more stuff to keep up with companies is true. But I think the trend is just toward like better, cooler, more niche, um, and more like multimedia varied, um, work and more people now can create, can see themselves reflected in stuff that other people create than ever before. Um, and, and I think that's amazing just as a, as a lover of, of stuff and, and, you know, not to mention a maker of media that just makes me really happy. Um, and again, like if, you know, if I have anything to say about it, I will do my best to help make sure that, everybody is kind of equally resourced and that, you know, people have the the tools that they need to find their people. And if you make a thing that hundred people love more than anything else in the world, like that is a pretty awesome outcome in my book. So I am optimistic and I don't know, I hope that we look back and see this Spotify news as either a blip in the radar or as a kind of signifier that, going forward, more companies take podcasting seriously, more advertisers want to come into the space, um, and more folks want to really pay attention, learn, and do well in this medium because it is so special. That's great. I, I agree. I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, I, I think it's probably good for me to wrap up on my end. I'm going to get booted out of this uh, makeshift studio I'm in right now. Um, but I'd love, to end, I'd love to end by asking folks like if there's a show that you're excited about, your favorite thing that you've listened to recently. My actual favorite podcast is Horse, which is a multitude show. So I'm going <laughs> to give some another recommendation. But Horse is uh, two of our hosts, Eric Silver and Mike Schubert, talking about the like culture and memes and feuds and history of basketball and not 
anything at all about the um, sport of it and the wins and losses. So it makes me very happy that I can understand now these like good memes on Instagram um, and I don't have to actually watch the sport. <laughs> I was just listening to it on the before the call and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's great. And in and, and the same way, I, I'm fascinated by sports culture, but I have zero hours in my day uh, to devote to watching um basketball games so or any other games <laughs> yeah no I'm I'm with you um but I also really love uh I, I'm a new subscriber to this show called the secret life of Canada um which is put out by CBC podcast Canadian Broadcasting Company and uh it is a history podcast about the sort of untold stories of Canada so as a you know American a typical American I think I don't know as much about Canada as I probably should um and so having this lens through you know people of color in in particular, um, and, you know, women, queer folks, like different histories that don't necessarily get, you know, commemorated on currency or with a national holiday um, is awesome. And it's well produced. It's lovely. I really enjoy CBC's work. So that's been a recent favorite as well. Fantastic. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us in Charitable Radio. Uh, this is Amanda McLaughlin, uh, the founder of Multitude Productions. You can check out their shows, Horse, Join the Party, Potterless, Spirits, and Waystation. Uh, the classic line is wherever you get your podcasts. Anything else you want to share with our listeners before we go? Yeah, we have uh, a couple dozen free resources for podcasters and creators of all kinds at multitude.productions, which is our website. And um, yeah, just plug the word multitude into your podcast player and subscribe to the one um, whose subject matter interests you the most. But hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get you to listen to all five eventually. Awesome. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank you.